I guess it has. Hello, good morning, UCC. I'd invite you all to stand and greet one another in whatever way you feel comfortable with. High fives, elbows, waves. I'm going to start us off with a passage from scripture. This is Hebrews 4, um, verse 14 to 16. Just wait a few seconds here. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us join together in worship.
us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can all be together in this space or online on this beautiful day. Lord, I ask that you would give the words to Pastor Raja that we need to hear today, that we would take them into the rest of our week. In your heavenly name, amen. Please be seated and turn your attention to the screen. say a special welcome to the young adults who are camping out in the pinery, hopefully huddled around a single phone by a campfire out in the, in the wilderness watching the sermon. We miss you, and you better be watching or else God will smite you. Uh, for the rest of you well, uh, who are joining us, welcome. If you're visiting, I want to say thanks much for joining us as well, too. And for those of you who are visiting, you hopefully you had one of Chrissy's rhubarb pie bars this morning. Uh, I did not because I can't, but the rest of you, I hope you had them. And for those of you watching online, Sometimes it's good to come in person. Okay, uh, let's continue on. We're almost done. I say almost. In a couple of weeks, we'll be done. Uh, we've been doing this series called Half-Life, and the whole idea behind the series is looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So let's just recap what we talked about last week. So we asked, we talked, we asked this question about what is the supernatural? Right? What is the miraculous? So when I said to you, what would it take for you to believe in God? So it's funny. Um, I have this conversation quite a bit with people who are either atheists. Uh, I'm actually having this conversation very recently with a, a, a Christ follower who isn't, who wouldn't consider themselves a Christ follower anymore. They've decided that faith is no longer for them. And one of the things they brought up was the lack of the miraculous. They said to me, "Well, if if this is true, then how come in my entire uh, religious life, my entire faith life, I've never seen it?" And again, I would say to you, that's a valid question. Unfortunately, it's not a biblical question. And there's a reason for that, right? So we, we've been talking about it last week with this idea about looking at the book of Acts in the realm of the lens of the miraculous. So oftentimes we can think of the book of Acts and we can say, well, it starts off with like tongues of fire and, and shaking and all that kind of stuff. And I said to you that that's great. But if you actually went through the book of Acts and took every miraculous experience you have, and you divided it by the amount of time the book of Acts covers, it actually works out to be about 0.9 miracles per year. And so let's just round up to one. 
And so I would say that that's not that miraculous. It just seems that's the case, right? And again, it's also a misinterpretation of the understanding of how long the book of Acts covers. Now, the reason why this is important is because what this is telling us is the miraculous isn't really important to our faith. Right? It's not really part to what we talk about. And remember, we looked at this idea of three things that took place in the book of Acts that wouldn't be considered miraculous, but I would consider them probably the most underappreciated form of miraculousness. I said the first thing is community. I don't know if there's anything more miraculous than a, people, a group of people from diverse backgrounds, diverse ages, diverse socioeconomic statuses coming together in common, in, in common purpose. And I would say even today, as we are seeing the church fracture even more because of politics, because of methodology, because of all sorts of other reasons, a group of people finding cohesion in the body of Christ by the power of that, that to me might be one of the most miraculous things we see. The second thing I think is really miraculous about the book of Acts is how often this early, this fledgling, this, this uh, baby church suffered, right? How often culture and people and and circumstances really went towards him and kind of attacked them to say, you know, is your faith that true? And the third thing about the book of Acts I think is really miraculous, and we looked at the list last week, is how many people found faith in Christ. I, I said to you last week, and I just want to make sure you, you hear me when I say this, the greatest miracle in the Bible is when a human being submits their will, submits their agendas, and submits every aspect of who they are to Jesus. Because remember, I said to you, in that, in that miracle alone, heaven rejoices. Right? So, so even if, say for example, and, and that's actually what I did say to this Christ follower. I said, even if you haven't seen or experienced any of this stuff, I understand. But the fact that at one point in time, you decided that Jesus was worth everything, that might be the most miraculous thing that you would ever encounter. And, you know, that actually, you know, led us to a whole different conversation. And we looked at the very last chapter of the book of Acts. Remember I told you, the book of Acts ends off with a, with a prophecy and a warning, right? And the, 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 the good part of it was, is that Paul himself continues his ministry in Rome by the power of the Holy Spirit. The bad part of it was this part here. And this part is this. When Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right when he said, your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, go and say this to the people. When you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. So another, uh, it's so funny, I have all these, not all these, but I have some conversations I'm having, you know, obviously behind the scenes. And and one conversation I'm having with, with, with some, some individuals is how a person who is kind of rejecting their faith is trying to tell someone who has faith how they should view their faith. And so, of course, this person reaches out to me like, is this true? Should I? I'm like, Arr. okay. A person who does not accept the realm of the Holy Spirit, a person who does not accept a worldview of Christ, that individual cannot teach you or tell you how to have your faith. It's, it's, it's like I see on social media, and again, you understand I'm on social media very little, um, except for the, uh, 
the uh, you know the animal memes my my wife keeps sending me because she's such a such a soft heart towards animals. She has she follows this Instagram account called Animal Pet Rescues or Dog Rescues or something. And I swear we're watching television. We could be watching like Big Bang Theory, and she's crying on the couch. And I'm like, what are you watching now? She's like, this dog they found it, and they and they and they bathed it and shaved it, and they a month later, and look how happy. I'm like, ugh. I, I get it, right? But uh, but social media is so funny how Christians listen to what they say on social media as if it's true, as if the person on Twitter or whether they have a blue check mark or not or, or Instagram or a meme, you know, saying this, like how that tends to be like, oh, is that is that how I should look at my face? It's like, nah, no, you shouldn't, right? So the idea behind the series as well, too, is helping us as Christ followers to understand something. Christianity however you understand it, is at its core a supernatural process. This makes us Westerners very uncomfortable because we have reduced Christianity down to a decision and behavior modification. Right? We, we think to ourselves, if I could just grit my teeth and get through this, I, I will have you know, salvation. But all the things the Bible talks about in the, in the, in, in the joy and this is what we're going to look at next week and the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit next week. But like all that stuff is, is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So that's what we looked at last week. This morning, I want to uh, start off by asking a question. I, I came across this great article by Danuka Sarwira. Apologies if I'm not saying the name uh, correctly. But they asked this question. What if, what if you don't feel the Holy Spirit? So it's funny. In two weeks from now, we're going to have what's called the anointing service. And don't worry, I'll tell you what it's all about. But throughout this series, one of the things we, we can kind of ask ourselves is that even as I talk about the Holy Spirit, is you can say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't feel the Holy Spirit. And again, that's valid to say that. But it's actually opening up a whole different conversation about should you feel the Holy Spirit? Is that what the Holy Spirit's all about? So this is a question that they ask in the article. Uh, I've wrestled with nothing more in my walk with the Lord than a clear understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit. I spent many of my early years as a believing, believer hearing about how more mature Christians had a supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit. With a childlike wonder, I decided that someday I would reach that level of Christianity too. Right, so if you ever grew up around uh, saints of the Lord, I'm just not talking about Rick and Martin, but you know other others as well too, right? That if you if you grew up with uh, with with believers, you think to yourself, well, they talk about the Holy Spirit in this intimate, this this very very tangible way, and it's like, well, how come I don't have that? They go on to say this. Power from the Holy Spirit had become an elusive, mystical rite of passage that every real Christian was supposed to walk through someday. So it's interesting, right? We could talk about the Holy Spirit. And again, in my Pentecostal upbringing, and again, I use the phrase recovering Pentecostal, there was this, there's this rite of passage where I was supposed to speak in tongues. Every youth rally, every youth retreat, every time like they would, they would call us up to the front and say, if you want to speak in tongues, come to the front. And, and so they would come, you, you, and again, if you hadn't spoken in tongues, you would get up, uh, up out of your seat to walk to the front. And of course, those people who pretended or claimed they spoke in tongues, or if they actually did, I don't know, but they would secretly judge you as you walked to the front, right? And, and you'd sit there, and, and of course, a person would come to pray for you. And again, for those of you in a Pentecostal or a charismatic background, this is bringing you flashbacks of trauma. But uh, they would pray for you, and you'd be like, like, is, this, is it going to happen, right? Am I going to be finally speaking tongues? Because for a Pentecostal, that was 
the pinnacle of Christian maturity, supposedly. Right? And so this idea of like, this was, this was right a passage that I'm going to experience speaking in tongues or I'm going to experience something of the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem with this type of thinking is, <clears throat> more often than not, it actually leads to disappointment. And this is, this, this is where the kind of danger zone comes from. They go on to say this, if you identify with a similar lackluster journey of faith, I'm willing to bet there are many more of us. But what if our belief but what if our belief that we aren't filled with the Spirit is more a result of a biblical misunderstanding? So if I said to you that, hey, when's the last time you felt the Holy Spirit? And of course, you could say, uh, this morning. You could say maybe last week. But there might be a larger portion of you that kind of goes, actually, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I, I don't know when's the last time I felt the Holy Spirit. Um, it says this, I believe that the prevalence of those, these qualities in our day-to-day life is the most telling sign of being full of the Holy Spirit. So last week I tried to tell you and I tried to kind of emphasize to you that it was the natural part of our faith that's actually more supernatural than we care to admit. And again, it's not about um, speaking in tongues or any other miraculous things. I, I remember one time I-, I was a youth and one of the youth leaders, uh, it was a young married couple, uh, said this phrase, I, know, I won't forget it because it was so, they said, I remember, they said something like, uh, you know, God spoke to me this morning. And immediately I'm like, what did he sound like? Because I'm thinking James Earl Jones, right? Uh, back then, Mor- it wasn't Morgan Freeman, right? It was James Earl Jones, it was Darth Vader. It was like, like that's how I felt like, like, <laughs> like that, that's how I felt the Spirit should, like, like that's what the voice of God, in my opinion, that would it sound like, right? And they said the phrase that God spoke to me this morning, and I was like, wow, what did it sound like? And then he kind of backtracked a little bit because he saw how my eyes popped out of my head, and I, I had all these questions. And he's like, well, no, no, I don't mean to, I didn't hear audible voice. I'm like, well, what do you mean you heard the voice of God? Like, if you heard the voice of God, you heard the voice of God, or you didn't hear the voice of God, or you're hearing voices, and that's, talk to a therapist. Like, oh, well, like, like, what's going on here, right? And so what's happened is, is that we've kind of, puts ourselves out this idea of like, if I don't hear or feel, you know, God, well, then he's not real, right? We elevate our emotions to the point of, 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 of making that equivalent to what God is. They go on to say this, the best evidence of God's power is your obedience. It is far more difficult to persevere in relentless obedience with an absence of validation and recognition in the midst of trial than to speak in an effortless, unintelligible language in your prayer closet. The validation of his power in the form of speaking in tongues, healing powers, or other supernatural abilities are undoubtedly gifts from above, but to endure in the absence of them, that's what I call spiritual grit, right? So what I love about this article, what I love about this idea is that as I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, you can ask the question of when's the last time you felt the Holy Spirit? And again, broken record here, Western Christianity Right? We've learned how to manipulate emotions to the point where Western Christianity is almost based upon emotional appeal. In our worship, right, like, you know, the soft playing in the background where the pastor, you know, gives the altar call or, or somebody telling a, like a really, like a, a story that makes you want to cry. Like all these things or, or these dog memes or whatever my wife would be watching. But like, like we know how to manipulate emotion, right? We know how to do that. But the problem with our emotions are again, spoiler alert, they lie to us. I feel this, I don't feel this. 
I'm saved, I'm not saved. God loves me, he hates me. Right? Our emotions really are kind of are easy to manipulate. And really, Western Christianity for a couple of decades now has really kind of delved into the whole manipulation of it in our worship times and, 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 and you know in the, in the sermons teaching and all that kind of stuff. We really know how to manipulate. But again, the problem with our emotional parts, again, not that Christianity isn't emotional, not that you won't have those times of it, but really, if that's how you dictate whether God loves you, whether you're close to God, whether you feel the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, you're going to feel a lot more disappointment than you are going to feel God's presence. So the question we're going to ask this morning, and hopefully I'll answer you a little bit, is when you think of the Holy Spirit, what do you think of? So if I said to you, what does the power of the Holy Spirit mean to you? Right? What, what does the power of the Holy Spirit mean to you? I mean, you're like, huh. Like, again, for me, recovery Pentecostal, it was speaking in tongues. That was the height of, of, of the Holy Spirit from my upbringing. But really, that's not what the Bible says, the, the idea of what the power of God is. I, I would say to many of us, without realizing it, that when we think of the Holy Spirit, what we really think about is a spiritual battery. Right? This is what we think about when we think about the Holy Spirit, right? A battery is stored power accessible upon need. Right? That's what we think of when we think of the Holy Spirit. So you are a spiritual battery. You are a supernatural battery. And as you go out into the world and you encounter things, you'll be able to call upon the power of the Holy Spirit and meet that need. Well, actually, that's more witchcraft than it is the Holy Spirit. That's more Gandalf than it is actually the Bible. Now, the reason I say that is because when we pray for stuff, when we ask God to intervene in our lives, whether it's a sin, habitual, whether it's uh, a need we see around us, when God doesn't respond, the first thing that can happen is you begin to question your own spiritual walk. So what happens with me, especially, I'll tell you this, and I'll be honest with you, is that as a pastor, if I pray for something or ask something or someone comes to me with a need, I want to pray for that need. But what I really want is for God to actually, you know, say yes to the prayer request and let it happen. But the problem with that is that I'm telling, dictating to God what should or shouldn't happen. Now, I think I'm pretty wise. My wife would disagree. But I don't really know what God's plan is in the moment. But if I'm a spiritual battery... And I go to pray for something and nothing happens. Well, my conclusion is my battery's on empty. Right? So when I talk to you about, and we're going to, again, not to spoiler, but what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Right? So right now I've got this battery pack on my pants and it's got a, uh, it's got a battery indicator on it. Right? And so the sound guys always know to take a look at where the battery is on it. Right? And the battery's on, on, on a little less, they're going to they're gonna swap it out. And if the sound guy really hates me, he's just going to give it to me and watch me as my, my battery pack dies out. Right? The, you know, some people can be kind of evil that way too. Right? Just to be clear. No, I'm teasing. But if you go to pray for something, if you ask God to intervene and he doesn't, well, the battery's on zero. And everyone knows we are kind of obsessed with batteries, especially with our phones, right? The percentage on the top of the phone, right? We, we, we know what that's like. But I, I'll say to you that if you think of the, God's power, if you think of the Holy Spirit as a battery, you will always, always be disappointed, and you will think that your battery is empty. The image that I would like for you to think about when it comes to this idea of the Holy Spirit is not so much a battery, but the image I'd like you to think about is a straw. Now, here's what I mean. A straw is an empty container that merely directs the contents when they are available. Now, here's what I mean by that. 
When we think about the Holy Spirit, what we need to understand is we as Christ followers are not a battery. We are not a pot. We're not a glass. We're nothing with the bottom that we actually get to pour things into and keep into it. But instead, all we are are conduits, right? Now, I do want to say something as well, too, that there are some straws that are more robust than others, right? I'll use the word thick, okay? There are some straws that are, might, might be a little bit more narrow, right? Matter of fact, if you are in the uh, fast food uh, business, your straws are actually labeled particular types, right? So there's some straws that are good for milkshakes. Well, there's other straws that are like, like, like good for just straight liquids. And, you know, even as like, like your, 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 your face puckers to try to get liquids up of it. So the point simply is this. If you understand the Holy Spirit in this regards, then you, need to under, then you will understand a much better sense of what God's purpose and plan is. Because if you are simply a straw, you are not responsible for the contents. Let me repeat that. If you are a straw, you are not responsible for the contents. Okay? And the reason I need you to really understand that is because this is more, I know a straw seems kind of a weird way to think about it, but this is more accurate towards the Bible views the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as opposed to how we think of the Holy Spirit. You're not a spiritual battery. Whether you think you're on empty or you're full or whatever you are, you are not. Right? Because no matter what you say, no matter what you pray for, it's you pray in accordance with God's will. Every time that I've prayed for healing, I always say something like this in my prayer out loud so the person can hear. Lord, we come to you and we pray for healing for so-and-so, for such-and-such thing. But Lord, we also know that it is your will for, for whatever to happen, so we acknowledge that as well. Now, the reason I say that is simply this. I don't know what God's going to do. I will confess, there have been a couple of times in my life, again, not more than, more than that, but like a, like a few times, I don't know, I, I don't count, uh, but I, where I have prayed for healing, and it has happened, surprisingly, right? And I'm just, just so you know, I'm as surprised as the person that, that experiences as well too, right? But the point is, it has happened, but more often than not, it hasn't. But again, if I understand that I'm a straw rather than a battery, then I don't bear responsibility for whatever takes place. Because whatever takes place is really up to, the, uh, up to God, not up to me. So when we think about the Holy Spirit in this regard, it's going to help us to alleviate a lot of our responsibility that we come to it. So there's two things we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna use as kind of our guide this morning when we talk about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is triggered by need, and comfort resists the Holy Spirit. Now, here's, here's what I need to mean by that, okay? The greatest need that humanity has today is salvation. It's not food, it's not clothing, it's not anything else, it's salvation. Now, this, is not, this does not mean we as Christ followers do not think about the physical. We, 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 we support the rave hope, we go to cook a meal at the rave hope. Why? Because we want to take care of the physical needs as well. Of course. But again, if we truly have a biblical worldview, then what we really need to understand is we are thinking in eternal terms as opposed to just physical terms. So the greatest gift, the greatest need in the world today is authentic salvation, authentic Christianity. I say authentic because we know that there is inauthentic views of this as well. But the second thing is comfort resists the Holy Spirit. The thing in you that resists the Holy Spirit more than anything else is your resistance to stepping outside of your comfort zone. You know why? Comfort zones are comfortable. Right? They don't require anything of us. They don't require any change. They don't require any faith. Like, basically, you continue living your life as you are. That's comfortable. 
right? Being uncomfortable is, is when the Holy Spirit comes along and says, no, you know what, I need you, or you should, or this is a part of you that you need to give over to me. And in that moment, we have a choice. We get to hold on to whatever it is the Spirit's asking us to, or we get to release it. Right, we get to release it. So when we think of this idea of the Holy Spirit, these are two parts of it you need to understand. So the first part is the Holy Spirit really wants to guide every human being on the planet into salvation. But the secondary part after salvation is the Holy Spirit then wants to develop a character of Christ in each of us. Now, in the Bible, there are three major metaphors for the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. They demonstrate why, it is dif why it's difficult to define the outer edges of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I mean. If I said to you, in your mind, please picture God. And immediately all of you have an idea of God in your mind. It could be a cloud. It could be, it could be, you know, Zeus. It could be, you know, whatever it might be. So if I said to you now, okay, now picture in your mind Jesus. And automatically all of you have an image of a, probably a movie character whether it be Jim Caviezel or, or, or somebody else, of, of Jesus, right? Whether it's Jesus with a, with a sheep on his shoulder, maybe it's blue-eyed, brown-haired Jesus, the white Jesus, I don't know, whatever it is, right? Like, you all have an image of Jesus in your mind right now. But now if I said to you, okay, now, I want you in your mind to picture the Holy Spirit. It's kind of that, that whole buffering, you know, this is the, whether you're an Apple, it's, it's a spinning uh, rainbow circle, or for the rest of you, uh, for the PC users, it's a blue, blue screen of death, right? That's what comes up in your mind, because we don't know how to picture the Holy Spirit. This is why when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, it uses metaphors as opposed to concrete language, and we'll see this even more next week, how it's difficult. And what I mean by the outer edges is, is when we talk about God, we have an idea about who God is. When we talk about Jesus, we have a good idea of who Jesus is. But when we come to the Holy Spirit, we're like, oh, right? Is it Casper the friendly spirit? I, like, I, I, like, I, don't know, I don't know what to think about when I think about Jesus. So let me show you the three metaphors the Bible uses to talk about the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going I'm to show you at the end how these are important to understanding, but also helps us to have some leeway when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So the first uh, metaphor the Bible uses to talk about the Holy Spirit is oil. So did you know that in the, in the, in the Bible, the, the, the first two times the word oil appears in Scripture, it's, it, it symbolizes God's presence, right? So the book of Genesis, the two times that oil appears, it's about God's presence, right? It, it's, it's when Joseph puts oil on the altar, right? Because he's, he's signifying God was there. The phrase anointing oil appears 85 times in the Old Testament alone. 54 of the 85 occurrences of the phrase anointing oil are in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, and are directly related to God's holy presence in the tabernacle. We see this again in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Again, this is just a clear example of this. This is when David is anointed king. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Right? So it's this beautiful connection. Oil has this idea in the, in the Bible about God's presence. But again, it gets even more specific, and I'll show you another example in a moment, of, of oil being a direct representation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see this again, too, in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, remember, Zechariah is given this vision of, 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 of this, these lampstands. It says this, I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl, a bowl 
are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. Then I asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? What do they mean? Don't you know, the angel asked? No, my Lord, I replied. So again, pause for a second. Stop reading the other verse below it, right? So the, the angel, Zechariah, is shown this vision, but oil is central to it, and oil and candles and wicks, all this is a part of it. So Zechariah is like, what? The, is this a menorah? Like, what am I seeing here? But look at verse 6. Look what the angel tells him. Then he said to me, this is, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So Zechariah was being told that Zerubbabel, the king of Judah, he needs to understand something about this, this, this task he's going to have to come over. What he needs is oil for his lamps. And Zechariah and Zechariah's like, what? And, but God says to him, no, no, it's about my power. It's about my spirit that ne- this needs to happen. But it's not only in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. You know, there's a parable that Jesus tells that I didn't understand what he meant until I actually studied it through this lens. So in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of the five, um, uh, of the five bridesmaids who had oil, extra oil, and the five who didn't. Now, I always assumed this parable was talking about being prepared for when Jesus returns. And if that's your understanding of it, you are correct, but you're missing the other half of what he's talking about. Let me explain. So Jesus is in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 4. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lampstands and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. Verse 8. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. Remember, the, the bridegroom hasn't come. Just, just a little quick note. In the ancient times... Today, the wedding is all about the bride, right? It's, it's, it's you, know, you know, what's it, the choose the dress or pick the dress or say yes, to the, say yes to the dress, right? Okay, yeah. It's all about, you know, it's all about the bride, right? That's why she looks best. That's why all the groomsmen and, and the groom look all the same, right? Because no one cares, right? It's all about the bride. Well, in the ancient world, it was actually about the bridegroom. I know, right? Talk about uh, a gender flip there, right? But it was all about the bridegroom. So what would happen is, after the wedding, the bridegroom would go out and, and would celebrate with his friends, and he would come back to to be with with his bride. In, in, I'm trying to say this in gentle ways, in an intimate way. Okay, so that he would come back, and the bridesmaids would 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 would, would await that. That was part of their responsibility, but. The, but they didn't have, like, you know, Apple Watches or anything like that. They just came back whenever they came back. Right? Whenever the party's over, the groom would come back. So what happens is the bridesmaids are meant to receive the, bride, the, the groom before he meets his bride again in that, in that context. Okay. But in this parable, Jesus is saying something very important. See, what's important about this parable is not the fact that the bridegroom is left, he's returning, as I understood it, but there's this emphasis on the oil. Like, oh, okay, interesting. Now look at verse 10. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Now, look at this. This is kind of interesting in verse 12, right? So remember, the five bridesmaids who brought extra oil, they go in with the bridegroom. And again, we know the images here, right? It's it's the church. It's Jesus returning back. Okay, we get that. But now look at the second part. 
All right, because this is the part that actually kind of puts us all into context. Verse 12. So the, the five foolish ones come back. They finally bought oil. They're like, hey, hey, let us in, let us in. We have the lamps. We're ready to go here. The, look what the bridegroom's response is, because it's kind of bizarre if you don't understand what's going on here. What does the bridegroom say? But he called back to me, believe me, I don't know you. Really? Just because we didn't have oil, you suddenly don't know us? What is the parable really about? The parable is about this idea that oil, the Holy Spirit, is part and parcel to who we are. And we know this to be true. When you first became a Christ follower, you were really excited about Jesus. And, and perhaps many of you told people about this. Uh, we're having a baptism service on, on July 10th. Shameless plug. Right? But we're having a baptism service, and, and, and in that baptism service, the people who are being baptized will share a little bit about their story, right? Because they're, they're proclaiming, right? So baptism is an external expression of an internal reality, okay? When you were first became a Christ follower, it doesn't matter what age you are, it doesn't matter how old, young or old you were, there was an excitement about that. But after three months, how excited were you about being a Christ follower? I would say being a youth pastor of a thousand decades, not as much as you were when you first started. And I would say to you that many of you here who have been a Christ follower for years, that excitement's kind of, it's, it's kind of gone. No one's watching. We're not, we're not streaming this. Uh, we can all be honest here, right? It, it, like that, that joy, that excitement, it doesn't last. Dare I say that emotion? It doesn't last. To the point where there are Christians who are kind of grinding up their faith without the presence of God, without the Holy Spirit. So this parable actually kind of exploded in my brain because it's really not about the bride, bridegroom and the bridesmaid. It, it, that's not what it's about. It's the fact that those who are waiting didn't have enough oil to be able to have them. And again, look at the bridegroom's response when they come back with the oil after he returns. Look what they say. Hey, hey, let us in because we got the oil. Look at his response. Believe me, I don't know you. By the way, this is a common phraseology in Jesus' parables when he's talking about his return. Right? What is the thing that God wants more than anything? It's relationship. And in relationship, he knows the people that are his. Right? I know the good sheep. I know the good fruit. I know. Right? It's this word that he uses. So in this parable, it's this idea of oil. But again, it's worked out in this idea of, of the Holy Spirit. Another, just one more uh, passage of scripture. First John chapter 2, verse 27, and I'm using the, um, the ESV version of it. It says this, but the anointing that you receive from him abides. The word abides he uses here is meno. I'll explain to you in a second what that means. In you, you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. So what's interesting is after Jesus, the early church had this idea of anointing that still stayed with them. Now, the word that, Jesus, that John uses here is called meno. Now, it says this. It's a characteristic Johannian uh, term, portrays habitual fellowship with him as an active relationship that endures, keep on, continue as an activity or state or an aspect of an action. Here's what I mean. The word that John uses here is continual. See, when I say to you anointing, you think of it one time. I want to be anointed. Anoint me. I'm anointed. But see, what John's actually saying here, and the phrase that he uses here, and the tense, the tense that he uses in the Greek, is it, the implication is you are anointed every day. Huh. Now, just another quick note, because this 
part of this kind of bothers me a little bit because one commentator made, this, made the phrase, he said, well, see, this, is a, this scripture proves that you don't need to be taught. Like, ooh. Right? So, of course, you have to put it back in context. Look at verse 21 says, right? Right before this. So, I'm writing to you not, to be, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. So, this anointing that John is talking about isn't about this idea that I don't need to be taught. How do we know this? Look at verse 24. So, you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. I just want to throw that out there just because it really bothered me. Uh, but the point simply is this idea of anointing actually has this, con- this connotation that you're not just anointed once. You don't just receive the Holy Spirit once. You're not just filled with the Holy Spirit once. You're actually supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. One last one about the anointing. And this one kind of, I, I didn't realize this as well too. A lesser uh, analogy or a lesser metaphor for the Holy Spirit is wine. So in this parable of the Samaritan, uh, in, the, in the different versions of it, What's interesting is they, they talk about what they do to the Samaritan. Because the Samaritan story works just as well when you say that a Samaritan came along and saw this person and, and took care of him and, and, and brought him back to be healed. That story still works. But they go out of their way to talk about the oil and the wine. And one commentator said this. This is a way of consecrating the Samaritan, consecrating the person who's been injured, so that God can get a hold of their lives. I thought, oh, I didn't even see that before. I think it's kind of interesting. So the first metaphor for the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, is oil and this idea of anointing. The second one is wind and breath. We've talked about this a little bit, so I won't spend too much time, but just some examples, right? John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus, again, this is Jesus. Uh, and again, John chapter 3. People forget that Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit at the very beginning, right? We get John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But you need to go a couple of verses before that because it's all about the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. <clears throat> what I love about this is Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus about this idea about the Spirit. Remember a couple of weeks, uh, about a, a few days ago, how many days ago was that, that big windstorm that came in, right? I don't know where you were. Or what you remember, but I remember my wife and I, we were, at, we were in our bedroom, and all of a sudden, there was this quiet, then a lot of rain, and then whoosh, right? It, it just out of nowhere, right? And, and so, of course, my wife has these ferns hanging in the back of our, uh, our, our um, gazebo thing at the back on our deck there, and they were like, they were like horizontal, right? It's like, hor- and, and, our, and our gazebo with the canopy, I thought for sure it was going to rip off the deck and fly away, right? If I went out in that moment and I took like a jar, a mason jar, and held up the wind and put a cap on it, could I? Did I capture the wind? So if I opened up, it'd be like again. No. Right? What's Jesus trying to say here? That however you understand the spirit, it's not about this idea of how you can capture it in a jar or a bottle, but it's this continuous movement. See, what the funny thing about wind is, it has to keep moving to be wind. Spoiler alert, right? Like, like it has to move to be wind, because if it doesn't move, there's no wind. So however Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand the Spirit, it has to be this constant movement. Acts chapter 2, verse 2. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. See, everyone goes to the wing, tongues of fire, and again, rightfully so, but right before the, wind, uh, the tongues of fire comes, the entire upper room is a windstorm. It's like, right? It just fills 
with wind. John chapter 20, verse 22. Then he breathed on it and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is kind of interesting. This is one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And in one of those appearances, Jesus appears to his disciples and goes, <sighs> he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how to explain this to you theologically. I don't know how to explain it to you in, in a way that makes sense because I'm not sure if I quite understand it. Commentators are kind of, they kind of go back and forth on this. But the point simply is, is Jesus releasing the Holy Spirit on his disciples. And that's the easiest way to kind of deal with it. You're like, okay, great. And again, all scripture is breathed out by God. I said to you before, and I'll just remind you that there is a connection between the Bible and the Spirit. Remember I said to you, what does the Spirit want to do? He wants to take the scriptures, he wants to take the Bible, and he wants to make it alive to you. Right? So that's why it says breathed out. And of course, remember we looked at Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones? Right? What is the image of the Spirit that the prophet Ezekiel sees? Right? So remember the Valley of Dry Bones, at the very first, first one, people forget this, is that who takes Ezekiel to the Valley of Dry Bones? Right? Well, it's the Spirit of the Lord. Right? And then he sees breathe and winds. And, 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 but the thing is, though, is that this breath, this wind, it gives life to these dead soldiers. And again, what's the conclusion? What is God saying to Ezekiel? Well, in chapter four, verse 14, it says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live again. So remember, the Valley of Dry Bones is this, this, these bones, right? And so the wind comes and all of a sudden these bones come together and they knit together. You're like, okay, that's kind of cool. Right? And then the, they stand up. But remember, they stand up, but they're just golems. There's nothing in them. They're still not alive. They're just husks of flesh and bone, and no life is in them. And then finally the wind comes and breathes in them, and they stand up, and they are not just stand up, but they are a mighty army. So what Ezekiel is being shown here is kind of prophetic to this idea of what the Spirit has for us. The final one that the Bible uses quite a bit is this idea of fire. Right? So remember, John the baptizer says this of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? And, the, and he, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, for our God is a devouring fire. Some, in your translation, I might say all-consuming uh, all fire. Right? Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. On the day of Pentecost, all believers meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Again, the image of the Holy Spirit as fire. But again, it's not just there. It's also in the Old Testament as well, too. Um, in a kind of a cool way in, in a second, I'm going to show you. So Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4. The Lord will wash the filth from beautiful Zion and cleanse Jerusalem of its bloodstains with the hot breath of his fiery judgment. So what's interesting is this idea that the fire is also with this idea of purification. Uh, the writer of Proverbs says this, Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. So again, this idea that flames and fire is about purification. Now look at this. Exodus chapter 2, the burning bush, we've talked about this when we studied the book of Exodus. I said to you that in the book of Exodus, and this, this, little, this little scene here, we see an idea of who God is, right? So we see the angel of the Lord, we hear the voice of God, but why was the bush on fire? I never actually thought about this until a commentator pointed it out. Because there are oftentimes when there's like angel or like, like, like bright lights, Right? Why was the bush on fire? 
And the commentators said, and I think there are actually some, some truth to this, is this is a Trinitarian explanation in the Old Testament, the oldest, I, th- I would say, the first example of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Because you have the angel of the Lord, you have God, and you have the Spirit. So there the angel, Malak, of the Lord, Jehovah, appeared in the blazing fire from the middle of the bush. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called out from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. I would, just, I, would, I would say to you that this is actually a very Trinitarian explanation of who God is. Uh, one last one comes to this idea of the temple. There's a word, it's kind of a, kind of a cool uh, uh, Old Testament word, it's called Shekinah. And you're like, who? What's her name? No, it's, it's Shekinah. Now, what, here's what it means. Uh, Shekinah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning the one who dwells or that which dwells. Right? So this word Shekinah comes from this temple. Now, remember when Moses puts the temple together, he finally completes it. Remember what happens? This cloud comes and it settles on the temple. And the phraseology, the transliteration is Shekinah. Right? Remember what God says to, to Israel. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so that I can live among them. Right? So remember I told you that the Shekinah, this idea of God's presence, the tabernacle, was a way of the people realizing that God was living amongst them? N.T. Wright really is the one who kind of connected me to this idea of Shekinah and, and the fire. He says this, Various writers in Second Temple Judaism spoke of God's word, God's wisdom, God's law, God's tabernacle presence, Shekinah, and God's spirit, as though these were at one and the same time independent beings, and yet were ways in which the one true God could be with his people, with the world, healing, guiding, judging, and saving. So this idea of Shekinah, I always thought of sparkly, kind of like, ooh, sparkly, kind of cloud, misty kind of thing. But what actually it, it's translated is this idea of, of flames, of fire, which is kind of interesting. Now, watch this. Remember I said to you that there, the three metaphors for, the, for God's spirit is oil, wind, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and oil, wind, and fire, right? Look at this. Look what happens in uh, Exodus chapter 40 here. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all its furnishings to consecrate them and make them holy. Okay. Look at verse 34. Then cloud cover the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord fill the tabernacle, the Shekinah. Look at verse 36 to 38. Now, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord, phrase cloud of the Lord. How does a cloud be of the Lord if the cloud is the Lord? Okay. Um, hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the clouds so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. I would, I would say to you that this is a beautiful example of all three metaphors of the Holy Spirit being writ large for the people of Israel. And again, they're not really understanding it at that time. It's looking back where you get to see, okay, this is what God wants. All right, so let me summarize here. The three metaphors that the Bible uses is this idea of oil. Now remember, oil is consecration, and when I say consecration, it's chosen. Right? So when something was anointed with oil, whether it's a temple or a person, what God was saying is, take this individual and set them aside for me. You go, okay, right? But it was also this idea that God's presence was going to be with this individual or temple. Second one is wind. Remember, we have this idea of wind is new life. We see this from the, uh, the Valley of Dry Bones, but we also see this as the metaphor of the Holy Spirit. But there's also this idea of power as well, too, because wind is probably the most powerful thing in nature. And the third thing is fire. What does fire do? It's, it's, it's this idea of purification. 
right? Fire purifies, right? But it's also this idea of passion because, of course, right, we have this idea of, uh, you remember that phrase in, 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 in Romans, right? Never be lacking in zeal. Well, the word for zeal is zoso, which means to boil over, right? It means to boil over in, in our passion for the Lord. We go, okay, but you can't boil something without you have fire, right? Heat, boil over. You see what I'm saying there, right? So here's what I think you need to understand. When we look at this idea of oil, wind, and fire, this is the life cycle of the disciple of Jesus. See, at some point in time, you decided to follow Christ. Now, that could have been recently. That could have been decades ago. Perhaps maybe whether you're here or online, maybe you have even made that decision yet. Maybe you're just trying to figure it out or kick the tires of it, whatever it might be. But at some point in time, you started off this idea of oil, that you were chosen, you were consecrated, you were then set aside, right? Paul even uses a, a weird term. He calls it, uh, you're either an enemy of God or a friend of God. It's funny, there's no kind of in-between, right? Either you're an enemy of God or you're a friend of God, right? So when we choose to follow God, when we choose to become a disciple of Jesus, we, go, we, we move, and again, we're going to unpack this a lot more next week, but we move from categories. But the second thing is that happens is that, we are experiencing new life. Remember I used a phrase and I said to you that I don't know who said it, but I, it, it's a great phrase that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. See, I would say to you that the Valley of Dry Bones is a more powerful metaphor than we care to think. That when we walk through the world, what we are walking through is a graveyard. And, and I want you to get that image in your mind. Not kind of walking dead graveyard, but just you know get this idea that when you go out into the world, it is a valley of dead bones. We say dry bones, but it's really death, right? It's the valley of death, right? The shadow of the valley of death, right? That's what you walk through. And the only thing that can take something that's dead and bring it to life is what Ezekiel sees as the spirit of the Lord. It's the wind. The wind fills these people and it makes them alive. But the, second, the third part of the Holy Spirit is this idea of purification. So whenever you decide to become a Christ follower from that day forward, Every, every aspect, every one of your days, the Holy Spirit wants to turn heat up in your life, right? Because believe it or not, just because you decide to follow Jesus doesn't mean you have it all together. I know, right? It's a terrible thing to think about. So every day, the Holy Spirit is kind of turning up the heat a little bit because every time he turns up the heat uh, a degree or two or, or whatever it might be, well, what happens is the things that are hidden within us, they kind of rise to the top, right? I, I, I've told you this before, and I'll just remind you. Uh, back when I was in high school, I worked at a printing company. And back when I worked at the printing company, this printing company used to use lead ingots to be able to kind of print stuff on, right? So, it, again, it's a really old type of printing uh, style, and the good news is we don't use it anymore. But my job, because I was a grunt, was to take all, these, uh, all, all this old used uh, ink-stained lead and I would take it to this smelter. What I would do, and it was all blackened, right? Because it was black ink, right? So I, I put all this blackened lead into the smelter. I close the lid and I turned it on. A half hour later, I'd come back, and the top part of it is was just black. So what I would do is I'd take the scooper and I'd skim the top of it, right? It was actually kind of a strainer. I'd hold it up, the lead would stick down, and underneath it was silver. But you know what was interesting? As I close the lid, I dumped the I dumped the, uh, the, the, the 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 crappy stuff away, and I came back an hour later, and it was still black at the top. And I would scoop it again. That's what I did. <laughs> I know it's 
it's kind of a crazy thing. But throughout the day, that's what I would do. Because the longer the lead stayed in the heat, the longer the impurities raised to the top. And every time I'd come, I'd scoop it off. So what the Holy Spirit wants to do, and this is why the Bible uses the phrase of heat, but also don't be lacking in zeal boiling over, is when you cool off in your faith, you become immobile and stagnant. Right? Remember I said to you, comfort resists the Holy Spirit. Think of comfort as apathy or lethargy. Think of comfort as, as being stiff-necked or immovable. When you become immovable, the Spirit of God can't do anything with you. Right? It can't, he can't do anything with you. So remember we, we, we started off by asking this question here. The Holy Spirit is triggered by need. Comfort resists the Holy Spirit. Right? Oil, wind, and fire addresses both of these. So when you think about your life, when you think about your Christian walk, I've been a Christ follower. I, 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 I came to Christ when I was, uh, I think probably nine was the first time, and then probably 11, and probably 14. I think probably six times when I was 16. Uh, probably like five times when I was 17. And again, I'm being facetious, but really, it's not as facetious as you would think, because I, re so I have a 30th hi anniversary high school reunion I'm going to. It's in July. And uh, I can't wait to tell people that I'm a pastor, because I know what they're going to say because it's already happened to me a couple of times. You? You're? What kind of church is you? Are you? You didn't know me when I was a teenager, but I just want to say to you as gently as I can is I was the last thing you would think of as pastor material. I know I'm really respectable now, but back in the day, so when I go to this, uh, I, I missed my 25th one because I was living in Belleville at the time, so I, I, or I was away at the time. So I missed my 25th one, so I'm going to my 30th one, right? So, so it's in the, at the end of July. It's going to be fun, I think. Uh, anyways, so uh, at the end of July, I'm going to go there. But I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm kind of excited, but I'm also a little bit nervous to tell people I'm a pastor. Because, of course, the first thing people say to you is, so what are you doing with yourself? I, I'm, I'm just tempted to say milkman and just leave it at that. But that's not really the truth, right? So I'm going to say I'm a pastor. But, but see, what they don't understand is back when I was a teenager, as crazy and wild, and I'm so happy social media didn't exist back then, we did some really stupid, 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 stupid things. But the Holy Spirit was just turning up the heat. And he's been turning up the heat in my life for the last number of years. Do you know how I know that comfort resists the Holy Spirit? Because everything I know I should do, I don't want to do. I don't want to get up in the morning to pray. I know. It's not just horrible to say hear your pastor say that. I would like to sleep in. I like Rosie not to lick my face in the morning and stare at me until I get up to get out to go to the washroom. But I would just like to sleep in. I don't want to apologize to people when I do stupid things, and that can be often. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to deliver milk because, you know, that's just two days of the week I have to do something. Right? I just, there's things in my life I just don't want to do. And do you know when I know I don't want to do those things? As I know that I'm resisting the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everything that the Holy Spirit's calling me to do steps me out of my comfort zone. It just makes me do stuff I don't want to do. It just, it just does that. He does that in my life. But he does that in your life as well. So when we talk about this idea of oil, wind, and fire, the reason the Bible uses these kind of esoteric, kind of mystical, kind of hard, like the outer edges. Remember I said to you, it's hard to define the outer edges of the Holy Spirit. And next week you're going to see why this is even more difficult. It's because the Holy Spirit isn't about, let's define what he can or cannot do. Because what the Holy Spirit does in your life, there's actually a slide that I had that I, I deleted, um, surprisingly. 
But one of the things I deleted in the slide was this. <laughs> I don't even know why I'm about to say this. There's a reason I deleted it, but of course I'm just going to say it to you now anyways. You ever wonder why all our churches kind of look the same? You ever ask the question, did we as pastors all get together and decide this is how church should be? Because when I've traveled around the world, churches look very, very different. Right? Like when I was in, it was when I was in Ecuador, when I was in, in, in Africa, of the stories I read of sub-Saharan Africa, of, of the Middle East, of, of China, of, of other places in the world where, you know, you wouldn't expect Christianity to take place. The churches look very different. You know, in, in the Chinese underground church, they don't have any full-time pastors. You know what's interesting about their, their church is that if you become a Christ follower, you're the pastor of the church. That's horrifying to think about if you think about it, but like really it works really well for them. But not only that though, in, in other places as well too, in the Middle East, it's the exact same thing. If you become a Christ follower, you become a pastor, you become you know, the leader of your small group, your cell group, whatever it might be, and you're the pastor. You ever wonder why all our Western churches kind of look the same? It's because I think we just have gotten less creative. I think we just have decided that the Holy Spirit doesn't really if I can say that, go that far. I just think we kind of squelch the Spirit's work in, in, in the church because we decide this is how he can do and this is what he can't do. Let me close. Um, the book of Romans is kind of fascinating because the book of Romans has been seen as many things. But if you were to do something kind of interesting, just go into Bible Gateway and make your search parameters just the book of Romans and type in the word spirit for the word search. You would be amazed how many times Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And I would say to you, the book of Romans only makes sense if you look it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, again, this is my favorite Pauline verse, because this is the only verse that I think Paul actually kind of feels human to me. Remember, Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do? And all of us are like, yeah, that's me, right? So Romans 7, 18 says this. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And I think all of us get to go, yeah. Like, like there's so many things that I struggle with. Thoughts, behaviors, actions, prejudices. Like, like what, what do you struggle with? Now look at verse 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. I love how the King James Version says they use the word wretched, right? We don't use the word wretch or wretched anymore, but Paul says, oh, what a miserable, wretched person I am. Who will free me from the life that is dominated by sin and death? Right? See, you think the answer is Jesus, and the answer is always Jesus, but it's not really Jesus in this particular part, right? Because he tells us what the answer is. Look at verse 8, chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. Verse 16. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Why does the Spirit come live inside of us? Because inside of us is where all the darkness lives. Right? See, rules are not enough to tell you what is right and wrong. Because whatever the rules are, you will break them. What sin do you struggle with? What piece of darkness still is lodged in your, in your life? And the fact, fact is, I use the word sin singular, but really it's, it's plural. What sins do you struggle with? The bad news is, you'll probably struggle with those things for the rest of your life. Right? Like, like anybody who's been a Christ follower for more than 10 years knows 
that some sins you may have victory over, but you kind of find new ones to struggle with, so yay. But what did Paul say? Look, look, go back to ch- chapter 7. Chapter 7 is, you know, like, like who is going to free me from sin and death? It's not, it, like, if you read chapter 7 without chapter 8, that's a miserable chapter. But chapter 8, it gives us the answer, right? It's the Spirit of God, right? For His Spirit joins with our spirit. Your spirit struggles with sin and death. Your spirit struggles with, with habitual sin, with, with, with all these things. And that's why the spirit has to be internalized. Because only internally will you find freedom. Only internally will you find life. Only internally will you find joy. And all these things we're going to talk about next week has to happen internally. This is why the metaphor of the tabernacle, of Christ, and of the Holy Spirit are all about internal living. Right? This is why... God wants to put his spirit in us because only internally can we have that transformation. You, you need to be consecrated, set apart with oil. You need new life, which is the wind. But then you need the fire to continue to purify, to continue to change, continue to transform. Let's pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know what I'm doing. Relax. So, the reason I wanted to teach this to you before we moved on to the gifts and the fruit next week is because I, I need you to kind of conceptualize what God is doing in you. See, we are going through our lives and we are trying as best as possible to be good people, good Christians, whatever that looks like. But just like Jesus in the parable of the bridesmaids, I would say to you that what sets us aside isn't our behaviors but is the oil and how much we have of it. See, when Christ returns, we can be excited about Christ at the very beginning of our, lo- of our spiritual journeys. But see, Christianity isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. It, it's, it's a lifelong marathon. And that, that beautiful image of oil representing the Holy Spirit, that internal transformation... That's what Jesus really wants. Because I'm going to show you next week, without the Holy Spirit, you will not continue on in your faith. As I've been talking over the last couple of weeks and, you know, a little bit about Christians who are kind of leaving their faith, who are deciding that Christianity is no longer for them or they don't believe in the Bible or, or whatnot. Or, in some cases, substituting the truth for a lie, and that's a whole different conversation. I've just realized something. There isn't an intellectual argument you can have these people to help them to see what they're doing is wrong. One individual sent me 46 reasons why he, he decided not to follow Jesus anymore. 46. Some of them were contradictions of the Bible, some were whatever. And so I responded, believe it or not, I responded with 46 rebuttals to all of them. But even after that, they were like, well, I still don't believe yeah, I get it. Because what has to happen isn't this intellectual uh, reality that you're experiencing, but it's really about the spirit. Some of you are walking around with your faith and you have no oil in your lamp. You, you, just, you just have none. You've been gritting your teeth and you've been grinding it out as a Christ follower, and I get it. I felt it, too. But what I've been praying for, I've been switching as I've been doing this series, and I've been just reminded of, 
is is it's just what I need is is maybe it's I need more oil. I need more wind. And I certainly need more fire. Because I'm going to say this to you, and I don't know how else to say this. I don't even know how a nice way to say this. But Christianity sucks without any of these. And, and, and some people, I believe, are coming to the conclusion that without these three elements, it's not even worth it anymore. Like, what good is it to be a Christ follower without the oil of, of the Holy Spirit in your life? It's not as fun as your friends are having. It's not as, as whatever else the world is experiencing. But well, I just I just want you to know. Oil, wind, and fire. These elements, they just give life so much more meaning. It makes our faith transcendent. So whether you're here in person or online, I just want you to just think about your your your, your walk with God. Have you run out of oil? Do you just need a, uh, just, a, just to breathe once again, just the wind and the Holy Spirit? Or is a fire of the Holy Spirit really just trying to purify you and you're resisting that with an element of your life, an aspect of your life? Whatever it might be, whoever you might be, whatever stage you might be at, I just want you to think of these three metaphors because this is what the Spirit is trying to do in your life. This is the life cycle of a disciple of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are you're kind of beyond definition. You are abstract, you are mystical, you are esoteric, you're all these words, but really, you are the key ingredient to everything that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And Holy Spirit, I want you to forgive us, forgive me, if we have resisted you, if we have, dis- if we have chosen comfort, if we have chosen stagnation, apathy, over you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are the creative force of the universe. There isn't a heart so hardened that you can't pump new life into it. There isn't a life so lost that you can't breathe once again. There isn't a person alive that you do not want to embrace and and transform into Jesus. So I just pray, Holy Holy Spirit, just be released upon our lives. Not just here, but every day. As, as, As John said in his letter, let us be anointed, but daily. Every morning that that we would receive the oil of the Spirit to get us through the day. To whatever we encounter, to whoever we encounter, what needs we encounter, whatever it might be. That would be open to the power in your presence every day in our lives. Spirit of God, please have your way in us. And Lord, I pray especially for those here, whether at this time or at a different time if they listen at a later date, for who are who are just dry, who are lifeless, who are apathetic about their faith, passionless. I pray, Spirit of God, you would just breathe into them, breathe into us. The phrase that Paul uses is fan into flames. Well, Lord, fan into flames the spirit, the joy, the exuberance of of life of the spirit in us. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand together and worship.
You may be seated. So we do our announcements at the end, obviously, just to hopefully you remember them. So just, oh, let's go back there. Um, so just Sunday, July 10th. So we haven't had a baptism service in a while. So if you have been tracking with us for a little bit and you realize you have not been baptized or you have not experienced that yet, or perhaps that's something that you just need to kind of in obedience of scripture to do, um, please talk to me. So we, on Sunday, July 10th, and I'm really excited about what we have set up. I can't tell you yet because we're still, again, working on some details, but we have a pond, in, 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 so it's going to be great to do it outdoors. And then uh, we're going to have a barbecue afterwards. So if you are interested in being baptized, there's some steps we need to go through. So just make sure you get a hold of me. So Sunday, July 10th, we'll be having our baptism service. So please make sure you get a hold of me uh, to email me to let me know. So there's stuff I need to send you to kind of do and all that. So that's Sunday, July 10th. Also, for the months of July and August, we will not be in here. We'll be at Waterloo Park. Uh, it's something we've, we, it's a tradition we started a couple years ago and we just want to keep with it. So, and again, rain or shine because we get the big gazebo on the west side of Waloo Park there. So for uh, July and August, we are going to be at Waloo Park. Also, as we've been mentioning, if you are here and you want to help out with the kids, uh, the kids ministry, um, please make sure you talk to Melissa. We'd love to have you for that just because we, we could use some more workers. So uh, just to give you that heads up. And finally, just kind of a, another announcement, a really kind of a big one, is on, sun, on, on Sunday, June 26th, UCC will cease to live stream its services. So just, we started streaming, obviously, a couple years ago, because, you know, this thing called a pandemic happened. And so we've been doing that, obviously, because we wanted to be safe. We wanted to make sure that we were doing everything that we can. But as we are emerging out of the pandemic, this aspect of our service is going to be kind of um, set aside again. Uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, there's a whole technical part of it. And with the summertime, our young adults leaving us, we just, we don't want to put too much strain on our, on our tech team. So that's part of it. But the other part of it as well is that, Welcome back, everyone, because, you know, that was, it was never our intention to be an online church. It's not kind of our aspiration. We did that so that we could be safe and that we could make sure that we are, are, are taking that uh, seriously. But as we are kind of realizing that we're kind of getting back to normal, we want our church to get back to normal as well, too. Now, we will still be uploading our services audio. So if you've missed a sermon, you want to listen to the sermon, uh, or you're having trouble sleeping, you know, it, it'll be there. So, you know, by all means. But we will not be, we will, after uh, Sunday, June 26th, we will not be live streaming anymore. Just, just to let you know, if you have any thoughts or comments about that, please, by all means, email me. We, we talked about it as a site care team. We, we discussed it. And, and we know that some people have been using it uh, because they haven't felt safe and all that. And we get that. But again, we look at, at public health and we look at, at, at where we're going. Now, say, for example, there is a, a you know, now it's monkeypox, I don't know, whatever, right? If, if, if some reason the government says, you know, it's probably best if we, we don't meet, then of course we have everything all in place and so that's good. But unless anything changes in regard to health and, and all that, we're, we're, we're going to kind of shut that part of the church down just because, again, it wasn't our intention to be an online church. We, we're so happy that people joined us. We're so happy that we were able to have that. But really, it's not really kind of part of our, our, our values. So uh, Sunday, June 26th, right before we go to the park. Now, there is one exception to this. And the one exception is the baptism service we will live stream. So we know that some people who are being baptized, well, their family members who may not be able to be there would like to see it. So we will stream the Sunday, July 10th for those who, who uh, have family members who are not able to be there. We will do that. But for the rest of the summer and unless things go 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 awry we're gonna we're gonna kind of take our live stream and we're gonna kind of 
shut her down. And uh, we will still upload the sermons, but that part of our, our, our church service is going to kind of be shut down. But again, if you have any thoughts on that, if like 50 people email me and say, no, it's like, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. But uh, we, we, we've been talking amongst it as a site care team to make sure that this is kind of the best. And, and again, I know that there's this fear and uncertainty and all that. But again, all the available metrics in regards to health and, and whatnot, it seems to be going the right direction. So we feel, and especially in the summertime, we'll be outdoors, which is even better. And by September, we'll be back in the theater. So, you know, that'll be good as well, too. So if you have any thoughts on that, by all means, please contact me. We'd love to make sure we're talking to you. And, of course, for those of you who continue to support UCC, we are so grateful. Thank you so much. It's because of you, we get to invest in the communities because of you, we're able to continue on. So thank you so much for that. Let's stand. Let's have our benediction and be released in this gorgeous day today. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have not left us as spiritual orphans, but instead we have the very power of God living inside of us. Holy Spirit, help us to be straws. We do not own your power. We do not know your mind, but instead we just want to be willing. We just want to be usable to you out in the world. As you would see fit, as you would see in our lives, Holy Spirit, I pray for that. And Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would take us and, and you know, just make us thicker straws of you so we can have more of your presence flowing through us, Lord. God, I thank you for your, your, your oil. I thank you for your wind. And I thank you for your fire. And I pray for all three of these aspects to be all in, in all of our lives in abundance. Now, may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions, I'll say at the front, the rest of you, have a great day. Make sure you get one of Chrissy's rhubarb uh, pie thing, my jiggers in the front. They're amazing. They're great. So please help yourselves. Take care. Have a great week.